Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today we are going to talk about a book uh, that all of you should uh, read and buy because it is probably see Vikram has written so many good books but uh, the, so obviously I mean full disclosure every time Vikram writes a book mai pehle hi pad leta hu because uh, uh, at least I feel uh, very good that Vikram values my opinion as a person so Vikram always sends me his copies pehle to read and uh, and then we have all we have Vikram and I have this thing we we I read the book and then we have a long telephonic discussion about the book and and uh, when I read this book this was the first time I told Vikram Vikram mujhe ek cheez missing lag rahi hai and Vikram said tu chinta mat kar wo cheez puri ho gayi hai teri book mein because at that time it was not done so uh, today's book is obviously Waiting for Shiva, unearthing the truth of Kashi's Gyanwapi, and uh, to discuss as always, I have my favorite author. I I always say this, and not because he's my friend, because I said this on the Doskas podcast also. I was like, I don't say children or adults should read Vikram Sampath because he's my friend. I say people should read Vikram Sampath is because he's one of the best historians in India. Vikram, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, thank you, Kushal, and you're my be- best. podcast host not because again you're because you're my friend but i think when it comes to a book i think among the few people who will read the book cover to cover and make it such an enriching conversation you know otherwise everyone ha- just flips the few pages here and there reads the introduction uh, and then has this bahi ghisapita questions uh, with you uh, you'll you'll grill me even in the podcast as you do in that feedback session that you do uh, when you uh, read the book and give me the raw <laughs> raw feedback then so that's what is it uh, you know always the best thing and this is the first podcast for this book that we are doing <laughs> yeah so and, and listen it 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 see for me it's always been this podcast i've always told you well when authors feel that they like chatting to me that gives me the most pleasure is because i know how hard you have worked because i know you were working on the tipu book and then this project came in between and while you're working on that book you had to go through tons of material for this book so let's first talk about the researching aspect of this book because people don't realize what an author has to go through just for one book so what what was the gamut of stuff that you covered just for this book yeah so uh, you know like you said uh, i was neck deep into this uh, mammoth task which i've been uh, you know engrossed in for the last two two and a half years uh, which is the biography of i can't say just tipu sultan but it's also hyder ali as you know you've already uh, read that also <laughs> at least the raw version <laughs> so both hyder and uh, tipu which goes to about 275000 words as on date so i don't know how much more is left a little bit more is left to be covered but i thought you know by this uh, by the uh, december 2023 that will wind up and sometime mid of this year uh, the tipu book would come out uh, but then it was a chance meeting uh, at the pondicherry lit fest so i think uh, you know th- uh, this book owes its existence to alo and ajit and parth and uh, all the uh, lovely people at pondi uh who were uh, you know over dinner by chance you know there were so many people i don't know how serendipitously um our dear friend vishnu shankar jain uh, you know uh, and i got talking over dinner and in the middle of talking i mean he was he's as you know is so passionate about what he does uh and there was also a lot of angst uh, you know in his voice uh, that uh, there's so much of uh, depth of knowledge uh, information about 
the Kashi Vishwanath Temple, whose case he and of course his father Hari Shankar Jainji have been fighting for so long against all odds. Uh, but he he was very sad that this has not entered public uh, realm and consciousness, maybe as much as Ayodhya has. Ayodhya, thanks to the popular movement, um, I think people knew what the case was by and large. But even the Gyanwapi case, though day in and day out it keeps coming in newspapers and televisions and there's so much of drama happening around it uh still you know ask a common person what is the background what are we fighting for i don't know many people may not know about it so he said you know would you like to look at the you know all the information uh, the legal history that we have and almost on, uh, on an impulse like i always do act very impulsively i said yes um and uh, then the it, it was so engrossing just uh, from the word go uh, but I was very sure I didn't want to restrict it only to the legal history. I wanted to make it a more broad-based, uh, you know, narrative. And so over the next couple of months, it was literally, uh, you know, a very fast project, one of the fastest projects I've worked on, which meant that, you know, staying on up till four, five in the mornings, the dark circles going outside my specs, uh, all of that happening. And then a wide range of uh, sources that we uh, that I decided to look into. Uh, one was the Puranic records, uh, you know, the Shiva Puran, the Linga Puran, the Padma Puran, the Skanda Puran, um, all, all of those, uh, Brahma Vaivarta Puran, um, and also the Parishishtas or the appendices that were added to some of these Puranas, like the Kashi Rahasya, which was added to the Brahma Vaivarta Puran, and the uh, Kashi Khand to the the most important, the Kashi Khand to the Skanda Puran. And there's also an Ananda Kanana Mahatmya, which was added to the Vayu Puran. So these were the Puranic literature. There were some of the Jataka tales, some of the Buddhist uh, sources, which also spoke a little about, uh, you know, Varanasi's Hori history. Uh, along with that, uh, a series of Sanskrit, uh, you know, uh, nibandhas or long format compositions over a series of, uh, you know, a long span of time. Uh, so in the 11th century, you had the Kahadwala rulers of uh, Kanauj, who later made Kashi their capital, uh, Govinda Chandra, one of the kings, his minister, uh, Lakshmidhara, he wrote a very wonderful treatise called Kritya Kalpataru. Uh, that had a substantial part about Kashi Mahatmya uh, and eulogies to Kashi, how great it was, and the references to Vishwanath uh, and the Mandir there, Avimukteshwar also, all these details in the 11th century, uh, you know, Nibandha. Then in 1460, we had this man called Vachaspati Mishra, not the uh, not the Advaita scholar, but, uh, you know, another person uh, who wrote the Tirtha Chintamani, in which, again, there was lots of references to Kashi. And a seminal work of the 16th century by Narayan Bhatt called Tri Sthali Setu, uh, three, uh, you know, the three main pilgrim centers, uh, Kashi, Prayag and Gaya. And in that almost, you know, 50-60% of that is about Kashi. And immediately after Narayan Bhatt, there was Mitra Mishra who wrote Tirtha Rahasya. So all these long format Sanskrit compositions, then there were Persian accounts of travelers by Albar, like Albaruni, uh, Farishta, Hasan Nizami, uh, there were also uh, Ibn Batuta and all these. Then also travelogues uh, uh, and memoirs of uh, foreign travelers who came and saw Kashi. This included uh, the Venetian traveler, Niccolo Manucci, 
Peter Mundy, the British factor who came to uh, Banaras, um, and also this uh, French traveler called Jean Baptiste Tavernier. So all these people too had written about the Bisheshar, Bisheshar as their uh, you know corrupted form of its uh, uh, pronunciation. They have also uh, you know written extensively about the Kashi Vishwanath Temple, and some of them, uh, like I think Nicolo Manucci, even Tavernier came around the time before after uh, they came before but they wrote their memoirs slightly after the demolition uh, by aurangzeb in 1669 and so they uh, mentioned that a few years or few months after we saw the bisheshwar temple it was demolished by aurangzeb so very clearly the contemporary accounts of the times too had mentioned this so it was a mixture of all of these then a lot of agam shastras uh, that i managed to uh, consult briefly to show what is the importance the sthalap mahatmyam of uh, a place and why it's important and in the process kushal i was also i think extremely fortunate that you know when when your intention is good i think the universe manifests help in its own way different people turned up uh, i was very very fortunate uh, to be you know to make contact with the shankaracharya of the shringeri um, you know kudli mahasamsthanam um, jagadguru shri shri abhinav shankar bharti ji and he gave me a lot of insight into some of the esoteric stuff which as a historian i would not have gone into but he said it was important for you to maybe put up in this book uh, what is the esoteric meaning of the shivling uh, you know because even while that uh, the the whole nupur sharma episode unfortunate episode was going on the constant jive was these uh, this is a phallus worship uh, it's a male organ and all that uh, so is ling shivling actually means uh, shiva's private part or is it something more esoteric so shankaracharya ji uh, you know very patiently explained to quite a you know dull head who doesn't understand so much of esoteric uh, philosophy and all that he tried to explain to me what that means and said this also needs to come in this and he connected me to two brilliant sanskrit scholars uh, professor k s kandan and dr h r meera who helped me translate all those sanskrit uh, you know um, uh, documents that i mentioned to you because i didn't want to rely on translations i wanted to go to primary sources and access the information with the help of a scholar so both these uh, Uh, wonderful scholars they helped me there and then of course vishnu uh, shankar jain and his father apart from their personal experience they also gave me a host of legal history documents which ran into thousands of pages uh, on the entire history right from 1810 you know when there were there were contestations how it entered the british courts from 18 after 1857 uh, once avadh came under british uh, you know administration uh, the constant you know squab- squabbles and fights between the two communities then one of the most important uh, milestone cases in this uh, entire episode the deen mohammad case of 1937 uh, and of course post independence the two civil suits that were for, uh, filed one in 1991 and the latest one in 2021 which uh, vishnu ji and hari shankar ji have uh, uh, you know championed so this was the entire gamut and for me it was the first time you know to be able to uh, even access sources so far and wide and in so many different styles the puranic style being totally at odds with what the legal you know documents talk about to kind of make a semblance of sense out of it and to weave a common narrative for a modern reader today that to in english uh, that was a huge challenge uh, but i i hope 
I have at least partially succeeded, and the book, uh, you know, makes for good reading for a lay reader who, who while he or she reads, uh, should be cognizant that at the same time they are accessing this entire breadth of uh, you know knowledge that I just mentioned. Vikram, I want to start from the very early bit of the book. There is a very specific line. Uh, I want to read this paragraph in totality. You yeah. you talk about historians and. and then you state their falsehoods and reputations lie shattered today as much as the mythical nehruvian consensus fortunately and after having burnt their fingers and reputations badly in the current legal contestations around the kashi vishwanath temple and mathura shri krishna janmasthan cases these marxist historians are thankfully conspicuous by their absence the harm that they have inflicted on our understanding of our past is a treatise in itself as will be seen in this volume 2 unsubstantiated propaganda with no sources was passed off as history in several cases including kashi vishwanath by congressmen like pattabi star sitaramayya or bishambar nath pandey and marxist historians like gargi chakrabarti and kn panikar they made atrocious claims and this is the bit i want to lay the emphasis on they made atrocious claims that aurangzeb destroyed the kashi vishwanath temple not of his own will but on the advice of hindu rajas who were outraged by priests molesting the rani of kutch these tales had no sources no details but yet passed off as true history through word of mouth and the sheer heft that some of these were these commanded demonizing the brahmin undermining hindu faith and glorifying whitewashing and acting as apologists for islamic bigots was a clear pattern of nehruvian secular historiography this too stands delegitimized and hotly contested today why i wanted to start with this bit is i want to first steel man the arguments these people have made that you steel man in the books and i know now you might be like are isko steel man kaise karu they are bringing it out of their ass i understand that which is why i read the entire paragraph in its totality so that people get the context but how what was the origin of this ghatiya idea <laughs> that it was the raja hindu rajas who did it like they must have like and was there no challenge at that time also when they came up with this rubbish story yeah so just see this uh, i mean while writing about it kushal honestly my my blood boiled uh, you know because i i feel you brother i feel you <laughs> so for the benefit of your uh, listeners i must tell uh, what that story was so uh, bishambarnath pandey uh, you know who uh, we speak about he was a very famous you know worthy of the congress uh, party he was also Uh, a scholar of history he became the governor of odisha he won several awards sahitya academy and padma and all these things and uh, he in one of his books called islam and indian culture a, a paper rather uh, he spoke about this uh, this episode and what is that episode in uh, you know common terms so he says uh, so once aurangzeb was supposed to have been going um, on an expedition to bengal uh and he was taking along with him all the entire entourage of hindu rajas and their ranis now the first now this story is a fairy tale it's a uh, you know cock and bull story made of uh, out of nothing so i just tell you what are the loopholes factual loopholes you know point by point uh so first of all nowhere in the entire biography all the authorized biographies of aurangzeb has aurangzeb ever gone to bengal himself uh, on an expedition you know he sent his senapatis and all the commanders but he's never gone to uh, bengal but in 
पांडे जी स्टोरी औरंगजेब साहब गोज ऑन द एक्सपेडिशन टू बेंगाल एंड ही टेक्स हिंदू राजाज एंड रानीज ऑल्सो सो एंड दे वाइल गोइंग फ्रॉम द कैपिटल टू बेंगाल वाराणसी कम्स ऑन द वे एंड यू नो ऑल द राजाज दे टेल औरंगजेब दैट यू नो जहां पना दिस इज सच अक्रेट प्लेस सो लेट एस जस्ट स्टे ऑन हियर टूडे uh so tonight so that we can go and worship vishwanath and uh, you know aurangzeb being the secular generous golden hearted uh, ruler that he was uh, immediately said yes yes let's uh, halt for the night the second loophole uh, the same rajas who asked permission to go and worship vishwanath they themselves did not go to worship they instead sent their ranis uh, you know to worship uh, vishwanath and the third loophole is the ranis of rajput states uh, none, no less they did not have security guards they went unarmed and all by themselves you know so the ranis are supposed to have gone to the ganga taken a dip there and then come to the vishwanath mandir did their puja etc and then they, they were they came back now when a count was then taken it was seen that one rani was less uh, in the um, less uh, in the people who came back and that was a rani of kutch who went missing Uh, so they frantically searched for her they could not find her anywhere and aurangzeb the news went to him and he was enraged that oh my god how could this happen uh, from my entourage some queen is missing and so he sent his soldiers there to look for her and they come there and apparently this temple had such marvelous architecture from i don't know how that it had a sliding uh, you know uh, uh, wall there was a ganesh ji ki murti which if you uh, displace the wall just slid and there was a flight of steps which went from there and once you go down uh, the the soldiers went down it, it was dark down and this was right below the garbagriha or the sanctum of vishwanath and there they found the rani you know molested wailing without her ornaments and clothes and all that and then they asked her what happened and she said oh i was molested by the brahmin priests of the vishwanath temple uh, and they do this very regularly to all the wealthy pilgrims who come to do puja at the vishwanath temple and so the hindu rajas were so incensed you know to hear this that they immediately they prevailed upon aurangzeb saying this place is like like a den of evil acts uh, the very place of satan so you jahapana you must demolish this temple now the brahmins committed the act if at all then they could have been caught and persecuted uh, or hanged or whatever for that the entire temple need not have been demolished but they told him and aurangzeb though he never wanted to demolish it himself he gave in to the extreme pressures of the hindu rajas and went ahead and demolished the kashi vishwanath temple so that is the entire cover fire that uh, pandey ji gives to aurangzeb's act so though we don't know in mathura in all the other different temples somnath so many temples that aurangzeb demolished which all ranis were molested where all uh, maybe there are new new fairy tales uh, that were spun in all those places now when we dig deeper into where did dr pandey get this uh, you know for his islam and uh, indian culture the source he states is pattabhi sitaramaiya's book feathers and stone now in this feathers and stones uh you know there is a reference sitaramaiya is uh, uh, you all know would he was the congress president who even displaced subhash chandra bose and he wrote the history of uh, uh, the congress party and all that so this man was also he went on to become the first governor of madhya pradesh so someone very high up in the ranks uh, in the esteem of the of gandhi and also of the congress uh, higher rank now in his book he first makes a reference to this fable uh, and what does he say i'll just read out straight from feathers and stones he 
He says this story of the Banaras Masjid was given in a rare manuscript in Lucknow, which was in the possession of a respected mullah who had read it in the manuscript, and who, though he promised to look it up and give us the manuscript to give the manuscript to a friend to whom he had narrated the story, he died without fulfilling his promise. This story is little known, and the prejudice we are told against Aurangzeb persists. So, what is he saying here? That this entire story of the Kacharani and all that was in a rare manuscript with a mullah uh, in Lucknow, and he died without giving it to his friend. And his friend told that to Patabi Sitaramaya. Now, unknown mullah, unknown friend, unnamed manuscript. Uh, but that is truth, you know. And four, three, four PhDs uh, have been written, which quote this as one of the reasons for Aurangzeb's, uh, you know, demolition of uh, uh, the masjid. And later on, other, you know, the, this totally undocumented malicious propaganda was then given more, uh, you know, uh, respectability by academicians and so-called professional historians, uh, whom you mentioned, Gargi Chakravarti. She says, and I quote her. Much has been said about Aurangzeb's demolition, order of Vishwanath temple at Banaras, but documentary evidence gives a new dimension to the whole episode. So what is this documentary evidence? This unnamed mullah's unknown manuscript, and he died without giving it to anybody. So nobody has seen the, you know, godforsaken document. And the, uh, you know, under the K.N. Panikkar of the Jawaharlal Nehru University, he spins a different theory. He says the destruction of the temple at Banaras also had political motives. It appears that a nexus between the Sufi rebels and the pundits of the temple existed. And it was primarily to smash this nexus that Aurangzeb ordered action against the temple. So it, it appears, just see the words he uses, it appears that a nexus existed between Sufi rebels and the Brahmin uh, priests of Kashi Vishwanath. Now, how, to whom it appears and how it appears, what is the source for this appearance, we don't know. So then, you know, the circular referencing, one fellow has told something, then his uh, chum will quote him, then the third fellow will quote the first and second uh, chaps. And in this uh, wonderful peer-reviewed, to which these people have so much of, uh, you know, pride about, we are peer-reviewed professional historians, this is the kind of balderdash that comes out. And when you repeat a lie hundred times, it starts assuming the uh, veneer of the truth. And that's exactly what happened. This was just one such instance. Uh, and this, you know, your blood boils. That how do you kind of make up these kind of fantastic tales? And that's why demonizing the Brahmin uh, and providing cover fire to the Islamic bigot. That is the constant, uh, you know, pattern all through. And we've seen that even in the Ayodhya case, we saw it till recent times where people like uh, Professor Irfan Habib and others, how they lied on the Vishnu Hari inscription in Ayodhya, how all these historians came on, came and gave testimonies which were full of lies in courts, uh, which uh, Dr. Minakshi Jain has documented so beautifully in her books, uh, which is there for all to see. So, you know, this is the subterfuge constant, uh, you know, nonsense that gets told. And recently, I think a month ago or something, when this Gyan Bapi was again in circulation, the entire story, you had Irfan Habib again, I think on Quint or so, he gave a, uh, he gave a statement first, uh, saying that, um, uh, you know, uh, finally he agreed that Aurangzeb ne pe temple to destroy kiya. But wo Shivji ka mandir tha, wo hume pata hi nahi hai. 
you know um so <laughs> so this opens the window to say as they always say oh but that was a buddhist shrine that was a jain shrine or the usual it's a it's a hisa pita it's so predictable kind of an excuse now in masiri alamgiri which is the contemporary which uh, saki mustaid khan who was commissioned during the lifetime of aurangzeb to write from uh, his own akbarat or the court documents uh, two years or three years after aurangzeb's death the masiri alamgiri was published in that uh very clearly uh, masri alamgiri states that in april 1669 you had the farman badshahi farman of aurangzeb which says all these evil places of the brahmins uh, in various uh, cities including uh, multan tatha panaras all these should be demolished and uh, the order is carried out and in september 1669 uh, the return message is sent by the soldiers in banaras or the uh, administration in banaras saying as per the badshah's orders we have demolished all the temples in banaras including kashi bishnath bishnath is what it is uh, saying so the contemporary record of his own courtier is saying that uh, you know he demolished it but our you know were these eminent historians will say oh but masiri alamgiri is not a uh, reliable document but this unnamed mullah's unknown source is extremely sacrosanct uh, why because it <laughs> it proves your uh, theory right so you know each time you know you see the kind of uh, uh, you know subterfuge that has been done with our history uh, you feel enraged you feel so much of sorrow and it's also that these people are still placed in that pedestal nobody they've not paid a price ever for all the lies for all the enmity that they have caused uh, between communities ayodhya too would have resolved itself uh, the even the muslim community was rather conciliatory and they wanted to give away the site because it didn't have much importance to them but these people egged them on saying nah, 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 we will manufacture evidence for you chalo you can fight and look at the quality of the evidence they manufactured you had people giving testimonies in courts uh, saying i am not at all a uh, expert of medieval india my, all my sources times of india <laughs> you know newspaper reports i have not read uh, arabic persian i don't know anything about uh, aurangzeb's history babar's history nothing mughal india so and someone said i did a phd during mulayam singh yadav's tenure i mean totally extraneous information so unfortunately and i'm so glad you started with my usual rant against uh, these type of historians who have done incalculable damage i think much more than what the colonial historians could have done to the way we look at our own you know past and what we make out of it now the reason i started with this is years ago i remember reading conrad elst where he had pointed out the absolutely evil role that yeah. this historian scholar clan has played in these yeah. issues whether it's ayodhya whether it's in now going to be in kashi mathura now hmm. and every time there was an attempt from the hindu side to sit across the table reach out to the muslim community and tell them dekho hame saath mein rehna hai let us solve this problem in a mature way and these historians would be like nahi nahi hamara case bahut strong hai and they could would go on misguiding the muslim side i'm not oh. giving a free pass to the islamists at all but i think these people what they have done like the way you narrated it what basically their claim is like trust me bro 
<laughs> it's actually i mean this this one single claim of that obscure mulla is literally on the basis of what trust me bro maine dekha hai yeah maine bhi nahi dekha maine suna hai yeah wo usne dekha hai wo bahut acha aadmi hai this is like chinese oh, whispers yeah. level stuff aur wo dene se pehle mar gaya you know that also he is not not even present today to defend that i never know sitaramaiya in my life so <laughs> so you know that is the sort of story now, anyway now the second thing i i i want to focus on this and again i will read a, a long excerpt from your book because these are two major chunks uh, which are part of what i call bullshit being peddled by uh uh historians in india one of them is that listen hindus never claimed this temple right ye bar bar bola jata hai you will listen to these casual off the cuff remarks by so called youtubers mainstream media panelists who go on mainstream media panels you go to conclaves prominent conclaves people make these off the cuff remarks and they keep on stating i'm just going to read this one bit but i want you to focus on this that what was the memory of the temple we are talking about this temple because this book is about this temple we are not talking about all the other temples the focus is this temple now you in your book you have mentioned you state the strong hindu believes that once a temple always a temple and the holy site being sacrosanct has historically led both hindu rulers and commoners alike to doggedly continue with their struggle to get back what is so sacred to them as the reader will discover in this book there are touching examples of how in the midst of the severest barbarities hindu royalties and commoners alike kept the flame of their faith and their devotion to these sacred sites ablaze barely two decades after kashi and again ladies and gentlemen this is a very important aspect so pay attention to what i am reading Barely two decades after Kashi faced a deathly blow of iconoclasm by the Maraudan Kutubdin Ebak, 1194 CE, a Sena king of Bengal named Vishwarupa erected a sacrificial post and a victory pillar right in the middle of the city to almost mark and declare that the temple might have been gone, but the city belonged to its deity Vishweshwara. From the Hoysala king. Veera Narasimha III in southern India, who pledged an entire village in 1279 CE to help pilgrims pay the brutal and oppressive pilgrim tax to visit Kashi, to a Gujarati businessman, Seth Vastupal, donating large sums of money, uh, large sums to rebuild the temple. The consciousness of cities like Kashi being the their holiest was rife in the Hindu mind across the country, north, south, east, or west. This common emotional connect to what matters to them, as bequeathed from their ancestors, is what constitutes a national rather civilizational consciousness. Something that mere drawing of political borders or promulgation of laws cannot hope to achieve. Vikram, this is such an important section, which is why I had highlighted this. And so, Jayadoga, I had told you on the phone too. We have to talk about it. How can they lie so blatantly that there was no Hindu consciousness in India? This is a proof of a sacred geography, right? Yes, totally, totally. And uh, you know, in the examples that you read, Kushal, uh, you know, none of the you know Indians, Hindus of that time said, "Ye to abad mein hai, Uttar Pradesh mein ham kyon? Why should we bother?" Uh, like today, when the Ram Mandir Pran Pratishtha was happening, so many were saying. 
Rama is a North Indian god. We are not, uh, you know, bothered. All kinds of other rubbish that came. Uh, so in the 12th century, 13th century, people could have said that it was so far away. There was no uh, fast means of communication, transport, and all of that. But despite that, as you said, from Bengal to Gujarat to Karnataka, uh, you know, where Veer uh, Narasimha uh, gave this Hebbale village uh, to uh, as a uh, the proceeds of which would go to pay the jizya tax for the pilgrims uh, and the you know from maharashtra uh, the common as well as the of course the marathas right from chhatrapati shivaji maharaj to the peshwas uh, and the confederacy larger confederacy whether it was the holkars and others uh, but also common uh, you know Mara maharashtrians um, i mentioned in this uh, book that in marathi there was there is a very popular proverb kasis uh, jave nitya vadave uh, you know, keep saying every day that you will go to Kashi. Uh, so I believe women and others, they would say this as a proverb. They could not afford to go or it was a laborious uh, Tirthyatra. So you say, keep speaking it, someday it will manifest. Uh, in South Indian weddings, there was there's this whole, even to this day, there is this whole practice of Kashi Yatra. Uh, you know, just before the Kanyadan is done, the groom angrily takes up his uh, uh, umbrella and um, uh, all of that and says, I'm going to renounce everything and go away to Kashi. And so the father-in-law runs behind and then washes his feet and brings him and says, no, you have a better op option in life, marry my daughter. So Kashi as an important symbol in, uh, you know, uh, consciousness even now uh, in weddings, uh, in music. Uh, I also document that in the book, uh, you know, right from... Uh, you know, in Carnatic music, okay, North Indian bhajans and all that, it's fine. But even in South India, in Travancore, uh, small little Travancore, farthest away from Kashi, uh, you had Swati Tirunal uh, in the 19th century, who has this beautiful bhajan uh, in Rag Sindhu Bhairavi, which says, Vishweshwara Darshanakara Chalamana Tuma Kashi. Uh, and you had in the 18th century, you had one of the trinity of Carnatic music, Muttu Swami Dikshitar, who stayed for eight years in Kashi and with his guru Chidambarnath Swami, and he's composed several, uh, you know, verse uh, uh, kritis uh, there in different North Indian ragas, Hindustani ragas, and all that. And the Maharashtrian Brahmins. So at the time when Kashi came under total plunder, and all the Sanskrit scholarship that it was famous for went under disuse. Uh, a lot of the uh, Brahmin scholars started migrating to safer pastures in South India. Uh, some of the Maharashtrian Brahmins were brave enough to uh, weather the storm, go to Kashi, uh, despite all odds, for such families called the Shesha, the Bhatta, Dharmadikari and Moni, who start staying there right from the 12th and 13th century and to do a renaissance, uh, a rejuvenation of the uh, uh, consciousness of people about Kashi and about Sanskrit scholarship. And that's how all these new Kashi Khanda, Kashi Rahasya, all these things start coming up. It's almost like the last possible archive of all the different, uh, you know, shrines there. So Kashi is not just, I mean, Vishweshwar is the central, uh, you know, uh, theme there, but it is almost, uh, you know, esoterically if one looks at it, it is like a yantra. It's a big yantra where different shrines are there within the five kosh or the panchakroshi uh, in Sanskrit, the yatra that is prescribed in the Kashi Khand and the Skanda Purat. So every day one is supposed to go and dip in the Ganga and in a certain particular order, you go around and do all this, uh, you know, uh, puja of different shrines. 
and in the skanda purana and i describe all those in detail as to which are the 14 primary lingas which uh, bhagwan shiv himself mentions uh, which are important in kashi according to him and it is believed he is supposed to have told in the skanda purana to parvati devi that uh, you know when a soul leaves uh, its uh, body uh, at the time of death when it comes out of the mortal coil he himself comes and chants the tarak mantra uh, in the year and ensures the soul gets liberation so that's why the constant hindu uh, you know not only belief the yearning was that i should die in kashi uh, and because that is that gives me salvation and if you take your parents old parents for a pilgrimage to kashi it gives you punya so many such beliefs uh, so i said it's not just you know the the royal families or just you know the educated but these are beliefs of even common people even now in kashi there is something called a mukti dham where people who are terminally ill they start going there and living there and uh, it's probably one of the few places where death is not feared it is almost celebrated as a very important part of life because it assures you salvation the manikarnika ghat it's kashi is also called the mahasmashana uh, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, you know microcosm of what indian philosophical thought was on the one hand it is called ananda kanana or ananda vana the forest of bliss and at the same time it is a mahasmashana where constantly funeral pyres are burning to tell you the how ephemeral life is everything is so temporary finally you're going to all end in that on that pyre to burn in few minutes and be off uh, and there is it's also called rudravasa where every kankad kankad mein shankar as uh, the common this thing in banaras goes so there are so many such uh, layers and layers of uh, folklore belief literature history everything associated with kashi and then we say that it doesn't have a hindu consciousness uh, i think nothing can be farther from the truth including the marathas i mean they constantly negotiated to liberate kashi from everybody i mean it said that when the uh, vishwanath temple was destroyed by aurangzeb chatrapati shivaji was very much alive and several accounts talk about how jija uh, mata jijabai his mother uh, literally shades him saying if you are man enough you should ensure that one day you will liberate this temple and so and that became a constant theme in the maratha you know psyche so we i have quoted letters of baji rao peshwa the first nana sahib peshwa all of them who are constantly negotiating with various powers with the mughals then the avadh nawabs uh, um, you know shujaudaula and others with whom they were uh, trying to negotiate to get back these sacred spots kashi ayodhya mathura gaya all these prayag and all these places uh including you know when nana fadnavis is signing the treaty with lord convolis uh, to make a alliance against mysore against tipu sultan this becomes one of the clause saying give us back kashi then we'll support you uh and of course the british reject that uh then madhav rao peshwa who was such a valiant peshwa who died at a very young age of 26 in his will three points of his will are about kashi and then he also says uh, i it is the duty and responsibility of my successors uh, to liberate this place uh, so and so people like malhar rao holkar even got an entire army to go and destroy this gyanwapi mosque uh, that itself the name itself is such an irony gyanwapi well of knowledge uh, uh, mosque with a sanskrit name there is no arabic or persian meaning of gyanwapi uh, so and then no doubt that you know his daughter in law ahilya bai holkar maharani uh, was the one who 
finally builds the temple um, in 1780. So it's a long stormy history in itself with so many characters, so many, uh, you know, players, but see the common thread in all that, you know, constantly people kept demolishing it, but nobody gave up. They kept building something in close proximity. And that is because of what you, you know, started off with reading, saying in the Hindu belief, once a temple, always a temple. So I also quote some of these Agam Shastras, the Vastu uh, Shastras and so on, Marichi Samhita and so many, which says this uh, uh, place, you know, so anybody could argue why you so hell-bent on just that piece of land. Uh, you know, you could, uh, now we have a big corridor and so on. So why do you, why are you so banal about just that piece of land? That piece of land matters, uh, whichever, you know, where the deity existed. Because in the Hindu belief, you do a pran pratishtha of a, uh, of a deity. So you invoke the divine or so it is believed into the form of an idol and that becomes a living entity so you go to have darshan you have you see that like like i come to your house to meet you so i'm going to the temple which is not uh mine but it is a deity's house uh and i'm going there as per the deities uh as you're going to somebody else's house with their permission you're going there like that and seeing that deity so unless and until you have a proper visarjan you know vidhivat visarjan like we do during durga puja ganesh chaturthi you know at the end of a period some uh, mantras are chanted and so on and the murti is immersed properly in the river uh, in the water body right then the visarjan happens and the pran pratishtha is ended but here if you just break the idol uh, that doesn't take away the divinity is what is the belief so that place is still imbued with the divinity of that deity which still exists there and so that place becomes very very important because it is still uh, imbued with the power and the influence of the deity. So that's why that place is sacred. That place is important. And so even Narayan Bhatt, uh, you know, in the Tristhali Setu, he gives a very, very, uh, you know, uh, somber kind of, it's a, it's very uh, sad to even, uh, you know, see what he writes uh, while everything is, uh, you know, in uh, uh, total ruins. He says this, and I quote, even if the linga of Vishveshwara here is taken off somewhere, and another is brought in and established by human hands on account of the difficulty of the times, whatever is established in that place should be worshipped or the spot where it was should itself be worshipped. These acts of worship have to be performed with regard to the different linga that has come to occupy that spot, even though the primary Vishweshwar Jyotir linga is not present there. And if owing to the power of the wicked foreign rulers, whom he calls, you know, Mlechadi Dushta Raja, there is no linga at all in that place. Even so, the dharma of the place itself should be observed with all the rites of circumambulation, parikrama, salutation. And in this way, the daily pilgrimage or the nitya yatra shall be performed. Such performances are to be construed as similar even in situations of replacement of the linga or the replacement of the pratima or the image. So it is very, very clear why a place is sacred in a Hindu context. Whereas, you know, a, a mosque is, uh, is, doesn't have this concept of a pran pratishta. It is a place where people congregate for prayers together. So that can happen anywhere. Uh, and that is one reason why even in Muslim countries, uh, Saudi Arabia and the other uh, places, mosques are routinely, it can be demolished, it can be shifted 
for very mundane activities like you know road widening or laying of a railway line and all of that we've seen that because there is no pran pratishthit deity sitting there uh, just people getting together it can be in uh, you know any place which is the other argument no we will do our namaz even in the middle of the street we will do it in uh, malls we will do it in airport lounges everywhere so that means you can do prayer anywhere you don't need to actually have a deity which is pran pratishthit or the place which is significant that's a theological difference between the two structures also a temple and a mosque so that is why i think the significance becomes so much more for the hindu side uh, and that's why its reclamation meant so much not only for us today but all our ancestors for several centuries long answer to your brief question no in <laughs> fact i also want to read uh, a small part where on this maratha bit because i also want to show not just the hindus the sikh community also because in your maratha part um you say almost 100 years after aurangzeb's monstrosity the noble queen of indore maharani ayilya bai holkar built another modest shrine for vishwanath around 1780 ce the common reverence of the indic faiths to symbols of their civilizational sacredness is best illustrated by sikh maharaja ranjit singh of punjab donating generously in 1839 to gold plate the domes and spires of this temple constructed by ahilya bai notably the same ranjit singh on his defeating shah zaman durani in 1797 had also demanded a return to the gateway of the somnath temple in gujarat that mahmud ghazni had taken away about 8 centuries ago I, why i wanted to read this bit is it's not just the hindu community even the sikh community just like in ayodhya कौन गए थे सबसे पहले जो नाम राम 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 लिख के आ गए थे निहंग निहंग गए थे सबसे पहले लड़ने पहुंच गए थे बोले साले हर जगह राम का नाम लिख दो इधर इनको छोड़ना नहीं है सो दीज बिट्स आर वेरी इंपॉर्टेंट विक्रम एक वो जो बुक का बिट है ना आई आई वॉन्टेड यू टू एक्सप्लेन दैट ये जो देर आर यू टॉक अबाउट इट इन द बुक ऑल्सो द टू काइंड ऑफ वर्जन ऑफ Vishveshwara and uh, the two temples. What is that thing? You have mentioned it in detail in the book. What is that bit? I will not get into too much detail there. I let the reader, you know, uh, yeah. read that. But uh, you know, so the, the there was. I mean, even if you see Lakshmi Dhara's um, uh, uh, um, composition, Kritya Kalpataru uh, of the 11th century, there Vishveshwar uh, is a sub, almost like a subsidiary deity. but there was another important linga which was called abhimukteshwar now abhimukteshwar which even in the 13th 14th century the uh, the kashi khand uh, it says that you know the whole world worships vishveshwar but vishveshwar worships abhimukteshwar who is his guru uh, and even in that lingatmak swarup that bhagwan shiv draws of kashi there various you know Kedareshwar is the uh, Jata, then Omkareshwar, the uh, Trilochana is the eyes, uh, various parts of the human body. There is one, one, one. As I said, it's a yantrik form. In that, the two right hands are supposed to be Vishveshwar and Abhimukteshwar of this Lingatmak Swarup of Kashi. So uh, Vishveshwar and Abhimukteshwar were different. Um, so it it is quite possible that uh, Abhimukteshwar was the more significant uh, deity. but over time and that was also uh, destroyed by aibak uh, but there was vishveshwar also both of them were there there was also this belief that abhimukteshwar was more of a uh, 
you know for the royal families and for the um, upper classes to go and worship whereas vishveshwar was janta ka bhagwan so everybody could go he did not have sparsha dosha so people could go and touch him uh, and which we do even today right i mean you can go into the garbhagriha in kashi vishwanath and, and yourself uh, you know uh, do abhishek uh, rudrabhishek and all that and touch the ling shivling which in lot of south indian temples you, it would be blasphemous to even consider that uh, so he did not have this sparsha dosha so maybe he became more popular and you know when there are so many iconoclastic waves uh, it is very very difficult to say where exactly which uh, thing existed at what time but we get a there is a transposition of the uh, sacred spot so there is a lot of belief that uh, the avimukteshwar or the original vishveshwar was where today in kashi there is what is known as the razia mosque which is hardly 100 yards away from uh, the gyanwapi uh, complex uh, if gate 4 when you enter there just across the road you'll almost almost miss it is where there is another temple called adi vishveshwar which uh, sabai jay singh uh, of jaipur his father uh, bishan singh maharaj he did a lot of research on it and he ensured that just to mark that this was the original place of uh, this one vishveshwar he put it uh, an adi vishveshwar temple there and even now the temple is under the rajasthan sarkar uh, you know control so uh, i mean ideally speaking that entire area then is the original sacred spot uh, but the uh, where the gyanwapi mosque today Uh, rest was where narayan bhat's magnificent temple uh, was constructed now he too probably got it built very very close to the original place because as i said that place is imbued with divinity so in the magnetic you know concentric circles there is still some amount of divinity circulating and so we do it close to that so that is probably one of the reasons why this new temple came up in the gyanwapi the ashtamandap uh, whose you know map even james princep and other the, the british scholars have made uh, you know lithographic evidence of the ashtamandap uh, temple of narayan bhat so there are these multiple uh, things which have gone into ex- extensive detail in the book about what is uh, vishveshwar versus avimukteshwar vishveshwar versus adi vishveshwar and all these different uh, things i've tried to address uh, to the maximum extent possible but honestly kushal uh, i mean i tried to also find out uh because when i went to the adi vishveshwar temple uh there and i had spoke to the uh, very very friendly and helpful panda there um, and i quoted him also in the book uh, he told me that this was built by sabai jay singh and his father uh, sabai jay singh was probably a infant then so it probably his father who built it uh bishan singh ji but nowhere in the temple complex there's even an inscription to say that this was built by so and so Uh, it is it was a little odd you know that for a rajput uh, rana to not actually have even a document to show that this was built by them and we also tried searching in the bikaner state archives in the jaipur archives because the jaipur royal family uh, was the one which constructed this if bishan singh ji has done so much research about the place somewhere he must have preserved those papers or something if he was if uh, you know he was such a scholarly uh, kind of a king so but where are those papers then is it extant somewhere we really don't know so so you know there is so as of now what exists is this gyanwapi mosque area uh, which is what is the original uh, the, the temple that we would like to uh, reclaim because then you we can go on extending it 
100 100 100 yards it will go all over kashi because you know you have the bindu madhav also destroyed you had several other temples also destroyed so uh, several things will then be up for reclamation yeah before i get into the the curious case of that one particular uh, muslim fellow you mentioned in the start i also want to remind that kashi is not just about hindus even the jains consider varanasi very holy so again yeah. i just want to read this bit from your book even the jains consider varanasi holy as their seventh spiritual leader or jinna in the lineage superashwa was born there the 23rd in the lineage parashnatha who lived around the 8th century bce was born in varanasi he was followed in the 6th century bce by the most celebrated jinna in the tirthankara mahavira who was a younger contemporary of the buddha he too is said to have visited varanasi in the four decades of his preaching life making a mark and creating a spiritual impact in a city like this was one of the aspirational elements of all philosophers and seekers through the century i wanted to read this is because i think people sometimes uh, kind of uh, forget that how much of uh, a, a spiritual center just that place itself is and people need to only... uh, be reminded again and again yeah and and so uh, other indic faiths are one thing now even within the sanatan fold uh, you know initially it was said to be a place of vaishnava significance and then there are puranic records of how i mean uh, stories of how vishnu bhagwan vishnu gave it away to bhagwan shiv saying you loved this place so you stay here so you have to start the puja of vishwanath with uh, this thing of uh, vishnu ji also there uh, it's so along with shaiva and vaishnava the shakta traditions too uh, for them also it is a sacred spot uh, all the important uh, philosophical strands uh, of adi shankara madhvacharya ramanujacharya the uh, veera shaiva the ramanandi the kabir panthi all these people jangamas the nath panthis the uh, you know gosains the the different naga sadhus the maha nirvani akhadas and all these people also have kashi as uh, you know their important base uh, and the buddha the buddha's first ever sermon Uh, was on the outskirts of varanasi uh, at sarnath and that is where he uh, you know gave his first sermon to the five principal disciples whom he you know converted to his uh, uh, faith and from there it the entire uh, thing proceeded but to show that you know they were when hyun sang comes in the 7th century to varanasi he writes about it that there were hundreds of buddhist uh, monasteries and buddhist shrines Uh, but it is a city of non-believers. Uh, that is the non-Buddhist, which is the Hindu. And um, he says Mahadev is the primordial deity here. So that means they were all coexisting in harmony, right? Even when uh, uh, Hyun Sang himself is seeing that the Buddhist monasteries were in brilliant form. If you see his accounts, which I have quoted here, uh, golden, uh, you know, uh, the niches in different monasteries. Even the deities of Buddha are all, you know, made of precious uh, stones and gold and all kinds of uh, ostentation that he uh, records. And interestingly, even the Gahadwala. I mean, we're talking of the tenth, eleventh century now. The Gahadwala ruler Govinda Chandra, who was such a devout, he was a devout Vaishnava. uh and he mainly contributed to the bindu madha and the other vishnu temples but he also gave extensive grants to uh, vishveshwar avimukteshwar all these shiva temples but interestingly 
both his wives were buddhist <laughs> both his wives personally were all, all uh, already buddhist and they gave grants to sarnath and other uh, places so in one family itself the king could have a personal faith in vishnu but he could patronize shiva temple and his wives could follow the buddha's teachings and they didn't kill each other and fight with each other so there was uh, you know not only in the city per se but even in the domestic setting we see this interesting uh, you know uh, fact and govinda chandra his wife actually puts a, one of her inscriptions in which she compliments her husband saying he is the one who has understood how to handle the turushkas uh, which is a turks uh, so because by then you had mohammad ghazni and ghori and all these people coming in so he imposed a turushka danda or a tax uh, to maintain standing armies to fight the turushkas if they came ever uh, to attack kashi and the entire gadwal kingdom and gadwalas uh, shifted their capital from kannauj to kashi uh, you know to make it uh, a very powerful because before that you had the gurjar pratiharas you had the paramaras uh, you had the kalchuris all these different dynasties of uh, north india who were vying with each other uh, and once their power uh, you know um, uh, declined that's when the gadwalas uh, took over as a major kingdom you know one very interesting bit is that uh, in that british court thingy in 1937 you talk about that guy watson who wrote this letter on 30th december 1809 he had thus argued i'm reading your book uh, he had thus argued forcefully that since the place was deemed so sacred by the hindus also dating back to their scriptural text while in comparison there was nothing exceptionally sacred in it for the muslims the latter should be evacuated out and the place reclaimed for the hindus in the larger interest of enduring communal amity between the two contesting faiths what this shows is that even the argument made at that time this letter is what 220 years old the hindus yeah. were standard bhai hamara alag hai system hum jagah se attached hai तुम कांग्रीगेशन हो तुम किधर भी बना देते हो और उधर पूजा करना मतलब तुम्हारी इबादत करना शुरू कर देते हो हमारे लिए नहीं है हमारा स्टाइल अलग है तुम्हारा स्टाइल अलग है हम जगह से अटैच लोग हैं हमको हमारी जगह दे दो और वो लड़ते जा रहे थे स्टोरी बट नाउ लेट एस टॉक अबाउट दिस दिस पर्टिकुलर यूनिक केस द फर्स्ट फर्स्ट पर्टिकुलर केस so what what is this case about the uh, our first version of the case where uh, what 1930s mein uh, what what was the exact year i i i am blanked out yeah. ki wo so so we have uh, kushal right from 1810 rights and disturbances jhagda yeah. hamesha chalta raha so you had the lat bhairo rights of 1810 uh, which in the colonial records of banaras gazetteer etc it is mentioned as a lat bhairo Uh, which is near the kapal mochan uh, tank today uh, it's called kapal bhairav also uh, it's like a lut uh, long uh, stuff that is the uh, ashta bhairav mandap so that is where uh, you know lots of things happened which have gone into detail and an attempt was even made to break the kashi vishwanath temple uh, by you know the the julahas 
who are in that vicinity uh, of the Muslim community and the Rajputs, the Gosains and the Naga Sadhus, all these people went on an offensive and uh, there was mass massacres of, across the bo uh, board and the Gyanwapi mosque was actually set on fire and uh, literally destroyed and the Muslims were completely evacuated from the place. And that is where this Watson's letter comes saying, he says that's a better, he was a district collector and he wanted it evacuated in the, uh, and given the entire area should be given to the Hindus because the way Aurangzeb had uh, or his uh, subordinates had constructed it too, uh, it was done to humiliate the Hindus, right? I mean, he could have demolished the whole uh, temple and got a magnificent mosque constructed, but he left the pillars, the walls, which we still have as the Western Wall ruins, as it is, so that they were signs of humiliation and insult to the Hindus who would see daily saying our most sacred uh, mandir is standing like this. You just demolish the shikharas and put three gumbads and say from today this is a mosque. That doesn't work like that. So, uh, so 1810 there was there and as I said, once the uh, principality came under British administration from Awadh, uh, then in the British courts, just like in Ayodhya, you have the registered court cases for simple stupid things, you know, like the people tree, this people tree belongs to me, this leaf is uh, falling into that area. So they were fighting and taking the matter to, uh, to the British judges, I don't know, they must have got exasperated saying, what is wrong with these two communities? They're fighting even over branches of the people tree. But that is how important this seemed uh, to have been. And time and time again, uh, you know, the Muslims would encroach some bit of it, build a toilet, all kinds of things for which the Hindu side, the Vyas Parivar, which was the, uh, the priests there, they would contest it courts, cases, all that I have listed. And the flashpoint comes in 1936, uh, which is called the Deen Muhammad versus the state case. Now, I must mention here very emphatically that this was a non-representative suit uh, in the sense that the Hindus were not made a party to this case at all. So its bindings are not, uh, it, it's fine. The, the conclusion of the case is not binding on the Hindu community today uh, because they were not even represented there. So it was the five Muslim men, uh, you know, Deen Muhammad and few others, uh, who actually said, we belong to the Hanafi sect of Islam and this entire complex belongs to us. We should be allowed to do namaz in the entire Alvida uh, prayers during the last Friday of Ramzan. We should be allowed to do in the entire complex. And took the British government to court, saying the magistrate is not allowing us. So it was a fight between the local Muslim uh, people, youth, and the British government. In fact, they even dragged the Anjuman Intazamiya Masjid, the, which was managing the masjid, them also to court in this case. Uh, but, uh, you know, there the, the reply of the Secretary of State uh, on behalf of the Secretary of State is very important, where he also says that this was never a mosque, this was never a works property. Uh, there is no dedicate dedication uh, record. See, what is a works property? A wakif or a donor, uh, he will donate in perpetuity a particular property to the Supreme Allah and that remains till the end of the world. Uh, but for that, there has to be an account uh, or a record. In this case, there was no record even in the British time. So it was not even a works property. Then uh, there were also Islamic laws which says if you do namaz on usurped ground of somebody else's property without their permission, that namaz is haram. It is not even uh, kabul by God. So according to this, there is no permission that was taken by Mr. Aurangzeb or any of his subordinates. So uh, it was an illegal encroachment. And he may have ordered a demolition of the uh, temple for which we have the farmans. But there is no farman to say in its place you construct a masjid and I am donating that land to you. 
he was the king so the entire land belonged to him no doubt but there is no dedication done by him uh, you know so uh, in 1936 37 this was the contestation and the important thing that comes out of that case that non representative suit is this that the british courts also held that this was not a work property and in the course of that you had so many witnesses who came you know and uh, hindu and muslim whom i document in detail in the, the book who talk about how important it was so today what we are seeing this vyas uh, ji ka tehkhana where puja was being done or the shringar gauri puja or the panchakroshi yatra the nitya yatra which even narayan bhat had uh, you know uh, advised the devout to do that was a continuous uninterrupted process even when the mosque was there so people uh, the witness testimony said every day we would do this we would go to the ganga go to tarakeshwar gauri shankar padmeshwar chakreshwar all those uh, different deities we would do then go to nandi then there was ganesh ji then there was dandapani and so this is the entire parikrama that you had to do which time and again these testimonies mentioned so which also showed that it was an uninterrupted puja being done in the mosque premises itself and most often the uh, mutwalli uh, would allow this in exchange of the some money you know i will give you uh, 50% of the offering you do your puja also so these type of things were continuing and the the muslim side din mohammad lost the case and then he went on an appeal to the alabad high court in 1942 and they lost that also the, even the alabad high court says you know this case is debarred now but then after that independence the long lull there was i think kashi vishwanath was completely forgotten it was only 1991 that the case was revived by then you had the kashi vishwanath uh, board also constituted by the up assembly and so vishwanath then became a deity a legal entity like you know in ayodhya you had ram lalla virajman who was fighting the case for himself similarly vishwan adi vishweshwar was the legal entity deity being considered as being minor uh, you know next friend uh, one uh, vijay rastogi uh, he filed the case uh, in 91 saying we want the evacuation of the entire uh, i as vishwanath own this place and i want it evacuated for my devotees to worship now that case languished in indian courts for 22 years uh, you know it was stayed and stayed and nothing moved and so on and finally now i mean in december 2023 uh, the alabad high court gave the order that this should go under fast track and within 6 months which means by june 2024 that 1991 suit should be disposed of uh, and tried but even as all this was going on or it was in cold storage in uh, you know abeyance in 2021 you had these five women uh, who filed another case uh, which said you know the shringar gauri puja that was constantly being performed by women particularly on the precincts at the western wall ruins you had the niche of the shringar gauri uh, they would do this every day go there and do the puja and it was for uh, being you know sobhagyavati and for their uh, husband's well being and all of that so um, that was uninterruptedly being done till 1993 and in 1993 it was mulayam singh yadav's government which barricaded the entire place and stopped this puja now even that is in contravention of the so called places of worship act because you have altered the religious character of that place uh, so uh, and they gave the permission only once a year vasantik navratri i think the fourth day or something you can go and do puja so these women in 2021 filed this case which hari shankar jain ji and vishnu shankar jain ji are fighting uh, on their behalf 
saying as hindu women it's our fundamental duty to worship uh, right to worship and uh, so we should be allowed to uh, do this and so the that case is what led to so many twists and turns which i again document don't want to uh, tell all the you know uh, very very uh, thrilling ups and downs that go which led to the advocate commissioner survey in 2022 where that shivling kind of structure uh, which is called fountain Uh, by the other side came up in the wazukhana which also led to the asi survey uh, report which is what came out uh, in january uh, this year which i think once and for all lays bare everything that this is and using the latest technology uh, ground penetrating radar there is differential global positioning system there is handheld x-ray fluorescence spectrometer all kinds of things in addition to uh, you know if you 800 page report if one looks at it it is so meticulously done and despite that you have uh, so many people saying this is a hindutva report and all that i mean ground penetrating radar cannot become hindutva it is a scientific technology it will say the same whether it is hindutva or islamic or christian so but anyway uh, so i think that contestation is going on and uh, you know as we speak that tehkhana is also reopened for worship as it was in the past so i think bit by bit these are milestones to reclaim the entire uh, precincts of the vishwanath temple yeah and for the record that tehkhana was reopened for puja exactly after 30 years when mulayam singh yadav's government had shut it so try and understand Ayodhya, in my opinion, was a much tougher case to win, because there, if we were not allowed, we as in the Hindu side, as a society, I'm saying we, if we were not allowed to do those archaeological bits, diggings, actual chipping away and seeing the site, maybe it would have been harder. Yeah, Ismail, so it is right in your face. Hello, Asa, it's blaring at you. It is almost as if this is like a middle finger, you know, metaphorically to the Hindu side. क्या है क्या कर लोगे तुम अरे यार कुछ तो शर्म करो यार दिस इज सो ऑब्वियस इट इज सो इजी इन द केस ऑफ आई टेक द ऑडियंस क्वेश्चंस व्हाट डू यू थिंक आर द पोटेंशियल मेंटल जिम्नास्टिक्स दीस पीपल विल कम अप विद नाउ बिकॉज़ आर्कियोलॉजिकली तो ये कोई आर्ग्युमेंट कर नहीं सकते सो डू यू थिंक सी माय फीलिंग इज दीस गाइस आर नाउ गोइंग टू फॉल इन द ट्रैप अरे व्हाट इज डन इज डन दैट दे विल बी लाइक आगे बढ़ो अरे ऐसे कैसे आगे बढ़े yeah no there are so many things i think already and the same and that's why reading history becomes important i saw some excuses being given even now that uh, uh this was not a temple this was actually uh, akbar's ibadat khana of the dinelahi uh, sect that oh, yeah. started you talk about and, it in the book also yeah so no that was being that is being peddled even now uh and uh, it was dara shikoh's uh, sanskrit patshala Uh, all kinds of things like that and uh, this was actually not the mosque was not built by aurangzeb it was actually built by jahangir or shah jahan or something like that so but but then the same uh, you know um, lies were peddled even in the din mohammed case uh, and that's why that case though non representative becomes important because the judge then had gone into i mean mind boggling detail and that's why i also documented that case in uh, you know meticulously every though it may seem like very long the chapter but then it is very important to understand that the same lies are being peddled even now and so if you know what the arguments were 
to debunk those silly claims it becomes very uh, evident so there's some guy called faruqi who wrote some book uh, while the case was going on and he was not a historian he was a lawyer of the other side he wrote a in hari in hari he wrote a book uh, hagiography of aurangzeb uh, to say there was some inscription which showed uh, that uh, you know it was built by shah jahan and it is some some so many such uh, lies which were peddled at that time so the judge goes into every minute detail in 1937 uh, and uh, says all this is kharij this does not exist so those you shouldn't be reinventing that wheel again and again with the same mental gymnastics we shouldn't fall into the same trap of that kachrani story uh, which i saw even now in some hindi channels in those raukas debates uh, one of those uh, people were saying the same thing that uh, this was demolished because it was a place of evil activities uh so all these things are can still go on and uh, the thing is yeah as you said and this whole places of worship act it has been put so it is debarred but that also has been uh, overturned by the different courts uh saying to get to the religious character of a place uh you know what is the religious character you need evidence and for that a physical survey by advocate commissioner or an archaeological survey uh, is very very important and asi is the most competent uh, body to be able to do that in this country so i think that uh, understanding of the past will help today's people to uh, to spot these lies you know when they get peddled because the case is watertight as you said hath kangan ko rc kya you don't need a uh, some gpr survey to show you that those pillars are of the 16th century <laughs> you uh, you know narayan bhat era temple yeah so i'll just ask you now two three questions uh, he has asked vikram sir north mein lord kartikeya ki puja itni kam kyun hai abhi kya pehle se kam thi ya beech mein kuch karanon ki wajah se kam hui why are why or is it even true that lord kartikeya worship in northern india is less now i think over a period of time it reduced i'm really not sure of the contours of how it went up and down but th- there are scriptural references to show that before it was uh, much in vogue uh, but i think during successive waves of uh, see because they were so apart from shakta vaishnava and uh, shaiva you had the saura uh, which is the suri bhagwan uh, ki aradhana karne wale you had the ganapatya Uh, which is ganpati ji is uh, this thing and the komara the which was of the kartikeya now these three if you see all the surya temples whether it is martand in uh, uh, kashmir or it is konarak sun temple most of the sun temples were all totally destroyed and maybe that sect itself the subsect uh, of uh, saura devotees were all probably killed or whatever in the case of the kartikeya worshippers also something like that must have happened and they must have all migrated to southern india and that's why today south india and particularly tamil nadu uh, murugan is more worshipped than in the north uh, but still kartikeya is a very famous and popular name that people keep i think in north india uh, so uh, the reverence was there but these three uh, you know kaumara uh, kaumara ganapatiya also uh, ganapati uh, in its various forms the the tantric forms of ganpati the various other forms of ganpati other than what we worship him as today uh, were very very popular those days so those all somewhere those became obsolete with time uh, due to all these destructions invasions so something similar could have happened uh, with kartikeya worship also though the exact uh, historical details i'm not aware of 
ओके आस्क दिस क्वेश्चन विक्रम जी नमस्ते व्हाट इज योर ओपिनियन ऑन द बिंदु माधव टेंपल व्हिच वाज सपोज्ड टू बी द बिगेस्ट टेंपल ऑफ काशी इट इज मेंशन इन द मत्स्य पुराणा एज वन ऑफ द मोस्ट इंपॉर्टेंट विष्णु टेंपल सो व्हाट इज द एविडेंस इन रिगार्ड्स टू दिस सो दैट विल बी अनदर पॉडकास्ट इन इटसेल्फ बट यस आई आल्सो आई आल्सो मेंशन दैट राइट सो अलोंग विद शिवाद द वर्शिप ऑफ विष्णु वाज कंसीडर्ड वेरी इंपॉर्टेंट यू हैड टू डू दैट एंड द पंचरत्न puja that even adi shankara established was that only uh, so you bindu madhav was one of the primordial uh, vishnu temples in kashi and that also was demolished and you have the uh, i think the alamgir mosque there of uh, aurangzeb uh, there too so that's another important uh, temple uh, which uh, the the idol has been preserved it has still been kept uh, there been lots of stories around that too which i think is a completely different topic compared to we are talking of vishwanath ji here today okay so before we wrap up vikram because abhi almost 11 bajne wale hain and i don't want you to be tired so just one last question vikram my biggest fear is that we should not make outlandish claims when when it comes to anything so what would be your message as uh, um as a historian to an average viewer listen you might be a content creator who does x content you just might be a content consumer it could be anyone but they will all come to xyz person so in a scenario like this what can an average hindu do when they go about making the case obviously one of the key prerequisites is you have to read vikram's book but if you were still going to give and i wanted this to be the last message that comes from you is that how can we make responsible statements in this entire like how do we frame our argument if somebody came and asks you this question uh, frame our argument about what about the case for kashi vishwa kashi vishwanath so yeah in this case as i mentioned through the podcast that uh, you know there the evidence is visible to the naked eye as compared to what is in ayodhya whether it is historical accounts whether it is puranic accounts whether it is the accounts of travelers of various uh, time spans of countries uh, in various languages uh, sanskrit uh, you know scholarship uh, right through the centuries uh, and legal uh, you know history right from the british uh, colonial era till post independent contemporary times till the archaeological asi survey report and the advocate commissioner survey report the the gamut of evidence in ayodhya everyone kept saying show us the evidence where is the evidence that was probably one of the weakest uh, you know links in this reclamation uh, so so but in this case uh, the evidence is extremely extremely uh, you know well uh, structured well documented and i think the book for all the readers would give them these uh, you know the information gnanam paramam balam you know first you have to have the information as to what is it you need to know what is it we are fighting for rather than just go on rhetoric uh, and also kushal there is uh, you know we have a lot of voices so many uh, claims counter claims uh, we would want a reclamation of all the temples that were uh, destroyed of course in an ideal situation that would be 
that would be the most ideal and fantastic situation uh, but first of all we don't know the numbers uh, to be honest uh, you know there are varied claims um, sitaram goel ji in his book uh, hindu temples what happened to them i think comes up with close to 2000 uh, 1826 or so temples yeah. some people also extrapolated to 20000 40000 Uh, and 40000 honestly speaking doesn't seem like an exaggerated figure and i'll explain why because if you see in this book also uh, when kutubuddin abak uh, makes his first invasion of uh, uh, kashi uh, hasan nizami uh, his uh, the chronicler says uh, abak destroyed 1000 temples in kashi in that one invasion and all the wealth was put on uh, 18 uh, camels and 300 elephants and taken away so in one invasion if 1000 temples in just one city could be demolished over 1000 year uh, you know islamic rule 40000 is actually seems like a very small number but the problem there kushal becomes you no know, hasan nizami also says there were 1000 temples he gives a number a figure so you can add all these chroniclers accounts and say 40 hai 1 lakh hai pata nahi it can be anything but we don't know what are the names of those temples we don't know which are those 1000 hasan nizami doesn't tell you which are those 1000 uh, so when we talk of reclamation too i think it's imperative first on the hindu side to first make our own laundry list first have that information saying Okay, I want 40,000 back. But if the other side says, Acha bhaiya, can you list all those 40,000 to me and tell me what are the 40,000 for me to reclaim? Can we even give that catalog? Uh, so first of all, I think having the proper evidence, which is what Sitaramji did, uh, and that is seminal work, one needs to build on that. Uh, so each of these cases where there is documentary proof, there is a weight like in Kashi and in Mathura also, which is another topic, uh, where there is a wealth of information, epigraphic information, archaeological evidence, historic, literary, colonial accounts, everything. It may not just be Kashi and Mathura. So it can be a longer list. So And I simply do not subscribe to this, you know, larger, uh, what the larger, you know, Sangh Parivar um, uh, demands are that, and then we don't want any other. I don't think anybody has the right to promise that on behalf of the entire Hindu community uh, because they are not any official spokespersons. Nobody has given them the right to do that. Uh, so it, But it need not be, it could be anything between 3 and 40,000 or 1 lakh or whatever. Any number. First, even before one goes and asks somebody back, I need to know what I'm asking for. So invest time in that scholarship in research uh, to ensure we list down these, uh, you know, uh, cases and wherever there is staggering evidence, wherever there has been continuous and uninterrupted worship, uh, like in the case of Kashi, it could, it could have so happened that 600, 700 years ago, our ancestors themselves gave up that place, uh, you know, saying, Chao, yeah, let's leave this, uh, you know, and now after 700 years to rake up, that really does not make much sense according to me. Uh, so uh, wherever there is this continuous worship, wherever there is evidence, wherever we can marshal all the facts, first do that. And then the next steps can be decided whether for everything we'll have to go to court, file individual, individual cases, which will each take 50 years, 70 years, I don't know how many uh, years, uh, or do we do it mediately? in a peaceful, mediated manner, ensure that politicians and courts are out of it and you bring the dharmacharyas of both uh, communities, you bring historians, scholars, all these people who will act as a uh, 
because finally we don't want to keep fighting for the next hundred. Our great grandchildren also are fighting about some temple and mosque because India is uh, poised for a big leap to the to to greatness uh, in all ways. So we can't, and as a historian, I'm saying we can't afford to just keep living in the past uh, and living in these fights of the past. So let's make peace with it. A truth and reconciliation would be that, uh, where we document all of this uh, and then explore various ways. Each, if there's no one size fits all for all these, whatever the number, each one is a separate case. Let us see how to negotiate this through various tools. And these things, I feel honestly that they should not be discussed uh, also openly in uh, media, in platforms. First, you have to do the work quietly. And if you're doing track to diplomacy, we don't uh, openly talk about it, that ye karna this is our strategy, this we will do. I think that is uh, also a little suicidal yeah. uh, because uh, one needs to work if you really are looking for success uh, in, the, in the case. If one is looking only for you know, personal aggrandizement or just to create strife and disharmony, that is another issue. Because ultimately there is a limit to which you can push uh, any community also to the wall. Uh, so there has to be some sort of uh, mediated settlement or a court settlement. Court will bring out all the muck out, right? I mean, even in uh, marriages, uh, the judges say out of court settlement karwalo because in the court, both husband and wife will have all sorts of allegations against each other. So it's better you do uh peacefully outside so various things there's no there's no prescription i can give as of today but i think the first step itself should be for the hindu side to start uh, you know building on the seminal work that sitaram goelji has done uh maybe add to that list subtract to that list make a list of these are our priorities these are our top 50 100 200 i don't know how many uh and it depends so a up person is not someone who will tell that in Telangana or Assam or, you know, Kerala, some temple may be there, which is deeply, as deeply, uh, you know, important for the people there, which someone in Kashmir or uh, Himachal or UP may not know uh, that this is as important to the people there as Kashi is to all over India. So, you know, different buckets of priorities, importance, and then approach it with that view is what I would say not only as a historian, but also as a commonsensical person who would want this issue resolved and who also has the larger, you know, interest of social harmony and, uh, you know, communal amity also, which is important to maintain. I don't want a situation in our country where after so many, you know, after a decade, we've had peace where bombs are not going off in our streets. So uh, I don't even want anyone to make those threats, uh, you know, or which I've seen, I mean, in social media, it came, this will lead to uh, communal unrest. So that can't, I mean, that seems like a threat uh, that, uh, you know, something is going to happen if you claim this. So why even give room for such things? Uh, if you want to act smart and if you actually want the end result to happen, I think one needs to do it very strategically, very quietly and with a lot of factual documentation and not just rhetoric and bravado. Fair enough. I think one of the biggest points that is missed in this entire debate was that, in fact, even your book kind of shows that, that yes, temples were broken, but the Hindus kept on building them again. 
many temples like when you make a calculation of the number of temples you also have to figure out the fact that are bhai hum haath mein haath dhar ke to baithe nahi the na agar inhone toda to humne wapas banaye bhi to honge na over a period of time it is just impossible that let's say um the entire list of people who say i broke x hey baba we built back many of them right we must have built back many of them then through natural period of time through natural calamities through climate changes through infrastructural changes many of these things must have gone uh, or i and that's why i 100% agree with you it's not about 3 or 3 lakh it's about how you do it there is a way of doing it you have to be mature in your argumentation and it there should be no rhetoric or emotional off the cuff faffing i actually am 100% on board with how you have explained but you go about building it how how sitaram ji did one last thing before we go somebody has asked sir vikram sir are there any personal book signings planned how do we come to those book signings Oh yes, so yeah, to everyone who's seeing, so right from next week, the uh, book is going to be formally launched in various cities. Uh, so on fourth of March, which is coming Monday, uh, we have the first launch of the book in uh, New Delhi, uh, and it's a week of Mahashivratri. So I think it's and it's on a Monday, Somvar. Uh, so all the more special, uh, and this is happening at the uh, Tin Murti Bhavan, the Pradhan Mantri Museum and Library Auditorium. Uh, by Shrimati Nirmala Sitaraman ji, and uh, we also have advocate uh, Hari Shankar Jain ji, Vishnu Shankar Jain ji, my spiritual uh, master Sakshi Shri uh, Sadguru, and uh, Anand Ranganathan who will be there, and Advaita Kala who will be moderating a discussion. That's free and open to everybody. Uh, you can come. I put the invite on Twitter and other social media. Uh, there's no pass. There is no security. None of those. Five thirty p.m. on Monday. and the very next day on 5th uh, march it's going to happen in bangalore um, uh, which again i've put up it's at the prestige falcon towers at 6:30 pm where sadguru madhusudan sai of the satya sai uh, sansthan he is going to come and launch the book and we'll have a discussion with shivani gupta so uh, and book signings books is going to be available there to buy and for, to get signed there'll be multiple cities we're planning in pune mumbai Lucknow, Kashi, Jaipur, Chennai, several places. So I'll keep updating those on social media, and you could, those interested can certainly come. But for now, the Delhi and the Bangalore events on fourth and fifth. For those of the viewers who are in these cities, please do come uh, in large numbers. I would love to meet all of you and sign your books. Fantastic. So, guys, uh, as you heard. uh delhi and bengaluru are already declared so in the description of the podcast we will have i would have put vikram twitter handle and a link to buy the book so if you have not given the order go right now give an order that's the first thing you're going to do and vikram it is an absolute pleasure to talk to you my friend and i look forward to the tipu book now so hopefully <laughs> thode time mein tipu ki book aayegi and we'll be chatting again chatting again that will be november <laughs> this year <laughs> <laughs> great so so i look forward to that so guys once again follow vikram if you are in the city go go for the book launch and you can get your copy signed and you know the drill as far as the charvak podcast is concerned if you can do join the membership program you can buy the merch on kushalmehra.com send your donations to upi if you can't do anything just like subscribe leave a comment if you are an audio listener leave a rating i'll see you guys next time until then no stay take care bye bye